And I'll do uh, a little bit of guiding with this meditation, doing the equanimity practice for tonight. It's a little better listening to the talk first and then doing the practice, but I think it'll, I think it'll be, uh, it'll still be uh, a way to work with, with the equanimity practice with something in your life that's current. So go ahead and find your, your best posture for now, feeling a sense of uprightness and also relaxation in the posture. Feeling yourself really sitting firmly on whatever you're sitting on. And really bringing yourself here to whatever, whatever it took for you to be here tonight and to get here after your day. Seeing if you can let that go and really arrive here. And you're welcome to do the equanimity practice. If you'd rather do a different practice, that's fine, but I'll give instructions for the Upeka practice, which is the fourth of the official Brahma Viharas, the heart practices, the divine abodes of the heart in Buddhism. And in this practice, we are working with something that we're finding it hard to reconcile, hard to be at peace with, something that doesn't make sense or that we just can't seem to uh, to let land, to be with. And there's so many things in the world these days, pandemics and climate change and other things that are hard to make sense of as well as things in our personal life that that we can feel it's impossible maybe even to have equanimity with. And yet if we wait for everything to be just right, just the way we want it, we'll never have equanimity. So this practice helps us to incline in that way. So with all the Brahma Viharas, we start with the object of the person or situation that is causing us to feel out of ease and, and in some kind of lack of peacefulness that it's hard to be with, that we can't reconcile either for ourselves or for another person or more broadly. Picturing that person and the situation. Feeling that in our heart, that intention to find peace with this, not through logic, but through the heart. And then we can apply a phrase that makes sense for us in this situation. Could be a phrase like, may I experience peace despite my inability to understand this. Or may you find peace with this difficult situation. And feeling into our heart 
seeing if we can allow for the heart to be purified so that we can find some peace, even if we still need to take action to make changes in the world or provide support for others, for ourselves. Inclining towards a sense of equanimity so that we're not agitated and and running over and over it in our minds. May I find peace with the situation. May I find a sense of equanimity with the unfoldment of the universe. Bringing the situation to mind again, the person seeing the person, whether it's ourselves or someone else. Being in touch with our wish for peace for ourselves, for someone else. May I find peace with the situation, even if I don't understand it. And practicing in this way until I ring the bell. I can't tell if people are back or not. I invite everyone to turn on your cameras. It's not required, but helps with that sense of sangha. So tonight I'll be talking about Upeka, the equanimity practice. And this is the fourth in a series of talks I'm giving on the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes or sublime abidings of the heart and um, and for those who may not have been at the other ones these are uh, practices that purify the heart they when the heart is unhindered these qualities will arise naturally so in doing them doing this as a practice we're both cultivating that quality and we're um working with obscurations that are that are in the way of that quality of our deeper nature arising um on its own and uh they are part of the samatha path in buddhism so they can lead to deep states of concentration which a lot of people don't don't realize um 
but really their, I think their, their most usefulness is really helping us be with the world as it is, to be with the human condition. And, uh, these four Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, empathetic joy, compassion, and equanimity cover just about every situation in the human condition that one could imagine. Um, and give us a way of orienting to a response that is uh, that minimizes suffering and that meets the world in its fullness without having to have the heart closed down. So a lot of times these practices are considered kind of as, as like side practices that aren't really like real meditation. But if one is really doing the Brahma Viharas fully, these are hard practices. You know, and what, what I've seen now in working with people for 16 years and my own practice for, you know, 40 years um, is that the places where we shut down and go out of the present moment usually are because the heart is hurting. That's what really is the most likely to make us want to leave the present moment. So these practices are really um, crucial for our ability to stay present with what's happening and not have to, not have to close down in order to avoid being with difficult, uh, the difficulties of the human condition. So the equanimity practice, this is called upaka. That's the Pali name for equanimity. Um, Opaka can also translate as balance. So I really love that because equanimity allows us to stay balanced and not be so whipped around by the ups and downs of life to help us stay balanced in the face of these ebbs and flows that are normal part of the human experience and, and part of the first noble truth that things aren't always the way we want it. And even when things are good, they aren't going to last forever. So um, can we stay balanced in the face of this and not be so, so whipped about by life? And a lot of times equanimity, it sounds kind of like, you know, we can sometimes hear that word and think, oh, that's kind of Blase, you know, how exciting is equanimity? But in Buddhism, if you look at how equanimity is understood and experienced in the seven factors of awakening, equanimity is actually the highest of the seven factors, even beyond things like joy. Or if you look at the jhana factors in Buddhism, equanimity is actually a higher level than than bliss and rapture. You know, a lot of times we think that that's really that's really when I know my practice is is mature. It's when I'm in bliss all the time. You know, we can have ideas like that, but actually in Buddhism, equanimity is considered even more um, sublime than that because there's a way that when we're in touch with equanimity we can really be with things as they are and there's like a contentment with life there's a satisfaction that isn't dependent on external conditions to feel that kind of satisfaction and contentment with just how it is with normal things you know with just Everyday life experiences can give a sense of contentment and satisfaction. We don't need a lot of excitement and drama to feel a fulfillment in life. 
So the Taoists call this sense of the highs and lows of life that equanimity can smooth out the the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life. And equanimity allows us to um, to have a sense of this balance when all of those are happening. And part of what happens with equanimity is is we start having a larger view of life and of the human experience that we can really have a radical shift in worldview from trying to control or grasp uh, the highs and avoid the lows to really just being present for what is, for being present for just how it is right now without needing to reject it or to grab onto it or to fall asleep when things are not exciting enough. We can just be with how it is and and not have to leave the present moment because of how it is. And the reactivity, this is another thing that's implied, but I just wanted to call out that part of what is happening is that the reactivity and the acting out of that reactivity that then can cause more reactivity from others in the environment, that whole um, sense of reactivity really gets calmed. It's like our, our buttons that can get pushed in life just, you know, they may still get pushed, but there, there isn't the same level, you know, of response to them that there might have been in prior times. So the um, equanimity balances the other Brahma Viharas and all of the three others, which are loving, coin, loving kindness, um, empathetic joy, and compassion, they all wish for well-being in a certain way. There's a certain kind of wish. We're not doing these practices to change circumstances. That's not what they're for. They're really about purifying our own heart and our own ability to be present with an open heart for life's circumstances. But there is a sense of kind of wishing for well-being in the others, and that's fine. Um, but this practice is normally considered the highest and the most difficult of the Brahma Viharas, although one could argue that all of them are difficult in their own way. But this is usually taught last, and this is really acknowledging the first noble truth and the reality of how things are and that I'm not in control. So with the equanimity practice, usually we would apply this practice if there was just like something in our life, we just couldn't like just couldn't live with it. We just felt like we're just in angst over it or we kept running over it in our minds, feeling frustrated or feeling, you know, a lot of times when we're doing that, what we're avoiding is feeling helpless, feeling powerless, feeling unable to change what's happening. And instead of really feeling the truth of that, we you know, keep running over it and over and over and over it and trying to have it be different than it is. And this Brahma Vihara actually is about just going, this is how it is. And maybe there are things I can do to change it, but can I somehow find a peace? If this is how it is, 
Can I find peace instead of running over it and over it? Can I maybe be in touch with the fact that I am actually powerless, maybe, to change this? And can I have a sense of peace? And um, a couple of ways of orienting towards that. One is the serenity prayer from Christianity. Grant me the thing, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So this is really pointing in a way at that. Can I have the wisdom to accept when I can't change something? My dad, he's um, he's 88 now, and he's become a Buddhist over all the years that I've been a Buddhist and been teaching, which is really uh, fun to hear about because he lives in a, um, a, a senior, independent living senior um, uh, facility where they all have their own apartments and things, but they can have meals together if they want. And occasionally he'll try and, you know, share some Buddhist wisdom with all the other, the seniors there. And, uh, and anyway, he has a, a way of looking at this that I really love that if something happens and it kind of bothers him, he first asks himself, does this affect me directly? And if it doesn't affect him directly, can he let go of it? And if it does, the answer is yes, it does affect me directly. Can I do anything about it? And if the answer is no, then he tries to let go of it. And wow, has he gotten a lot more peaceful in the last, in the years, really, of of non-attachment. That's really what he's trying to practice and live through, through that and other things that he's doing. But this is another way of kind of orienting to equanimity. Um, and the other Brahma Viharas can also slip into wanting to change people and situations in a way that equanimity just doesn't really have the same wiggle room to slip there as much as the other Brahma Viharas. This practice helps us build patience with the world, with ourselves, and the wisdom about really the true nature of the human experience, which points right back at the first noble truth that, you know, I like to understand dukkha as um, unsatisfactoriness. It's usually translated or often as suffering, but unsatisfactoriness gets at even the, the more minor ways that we um, we can somehow believe that we're exempt from that and that if something happens we don't like that that like something's wrong with the world and that it shouldn't be this way whereas if we're really in touch with the first noble truth that that pain is a part of the human condition for every single human including the buddha i mean the buddha wasn't exempt from this he had back pain his cousin tried to kill him you know and um and that there was infighting in the Sangha. So if the Buddha wasn't exempt, there's no way that we're going to be exempt from, from this. So the equanimity practice really helps us be in touch with there are going to be things I don't like and I can't do anything about. And how do I meet that? How do I stay in contact 
with life, with other people? What about when loved ones won't do what we want? That can be really annoying. You know, we just know that this is the right thing and they just won't do it or, or even in a deep way. Like what if a loved one has, um, addiction issues or mental health issues or health issues even and they won't we feel we might have the answer that would really help them and alleviate their suffering and they won't do it and we can't make them and that can be extremely painful especially one of the hardest places I think for people is when it's their children and facing the fact that a child, say, may be doing behaviors that are harming themselves and we and they're adults and we can't stop them. And so the equanimity practice helps us build a wisdom that is like um, a, an adult parent who wishes for their child to have less suffering, but knows that they don't get to decide and live that child's life for them. And so there can be an acknowledgement of the reality of life that we don't get to decide what other people do or how the world is. We can still show up. This practice isn't telling us not to be active in the world and to try and reduce oppression and discrimination and, you know, help the environment and, um, and advocate for, for fairness and equity and inclusion. So it doesn't mean we stop those things, but we're, if we're coming at things like that from reactivity or from hatred or anger, um, we're not going to be in the wisest place to actually contribute to making the world better in those ways. So it's not to say we don't do those things, but if we can come to them without reactivity, we're going to be much more effective in those situations. So with all the Brahma Viharas, there um, are, uh, there's an object, which is the core, and then there's phrases that we can use to support that feeling of equanimity. And then there's the actual feeling that can arise from the heart that is a byproduct of being in touch with this aspect of the human condition. So with this practice, with the Pekka, the, what's known as the proximate cause or the object is um, is trying to see things as they are or also sometimes seeing what is considered the truth of karma. So seeing that, uh, that we we're having a hard time seeing that and that's really what we're inclining to is, is trying to understand the first noble truth and reconcile that we can't always understand why things are the way they are. So this is what we're in touch with is something that we just maybe we feel it's unjust or it's wrong in some way. And we're just having a really hard time being with it, either something for ourselves or, or something that's happening with another person where they're agitated and, and disturbed about something. So this is really the, the core of what we're in touch with with the practice. 
And then the next level is the phrases. So the phrases are not, as with all of the Brahma Viharas, one of the things that's happened with the Brahma Viharas over, over time, or I, I don't know how it's happened exactly, but I do see it, see this a lot was where the phrases become the object. And that is really, um, it's like in the samatha, the, the mindfulness of breathing, if we're using the counting, the numbers becoming the object rather than the breath. Or with vipassana, if we're noting and the words become the object instead of the actual direct experience of the phenomena, we're actually losing contact with the object. So the words in all of the brahmiharas are, are support. And they can be very helpful as a support, just the way counting and noting can be a support with the other categories. So um, just to say that's important. Now, the traditional phrase phrases with um, with Upeka can be sometimes for some people, they can sound a little dry or maybe even a little harsh. And I'll just share a story with you of, that happened with me around this practice a long time ago. I was at the three-month retreat at IMS, and we were literally on like the last couple weeks, and we'd mostly been doing Vipassana. But, um, you know, this is three months, so we've all been together a long time. There is a six-week trade-out where some people leave and new ones come in, but it's a long time. And uh, we've gone really slowly through each Brahma Vihara periodically, one of the teachers would come in and, and give us a little teaching around the Brahma Vihara, and we would have that as, as part of what was being taught. So towards the end, um, the equanimity practice was being taught, and Joseph Goldstein came out and was giving the talk on equanimity, and he shared the traditional phrases, which I'm going to share in a minute. And somebody in the group, and, and we've been sitting together silently, like 130 of us, or, you know, it's a big hall there. This person stood up and yelled at Joseph Goldstein that it was just too, you know, he he just couldn't accept. It felt, I think, to this person like there was indifference in it. And so indifference can be the near enemy of equanimity. So I'll just read you the phrases. I just want to give you that caveat. Um, and this could apply to other people or ourselves. So their happiness or my happiness. My happiness and happiness depend on my thoughts and actions, not on my wishes. So what this is saying is that just wishing for happiness and then continuing to let ourselves go round and round with adding that second arrow of suffering isn't wisdom. That our sense of equanimity comes from our thoughts and actions, not on wishes. So that's the one of the traditional phrases. And the other one is, all beings are heirs to their karma. So that's a hard one to apply to a loved one who's suffering. So I'll give you some alternate phrases that, that are, that may feel more, um, more inclusive or more 
um, compassionate maybe. So one of them is the one I used in the meditation. May I experience peace despite my inability to understand this. So if we look at something like a pandemic, where so many hundreds of thousands, millions of people have died, how can we really ever really understand that? We can't. We can't really. I mean, yes, scientifically we can understand that, but at a heart level, there's just no way to reconcile that level of devastation. So this is, may I experience peace despite my inability to understand this. That's a way of holding it that has more, more, more softness to it. Um, another one in cases like that, like with climate change or with, gosh, some of the horrible human rights suffering that's going on. It's happening in Iran right now. Other things. May I trust in a larger perspective beyond my personal view that from from our own view of this, even of this time in history, we don't know that some of these things may lead to a greater wisdom on, on the planet because of really awful things that are happening now that will call people to action after we're all gone. We don't know. We can't know that. So this is really feeling into a sense of in Buddhism, it's called um, a just universe, or like in the diamond approach, there's what's known as the optimizing force, that there is an optimizing force for the human consciousness, that even when it looks like we're backsliding, if you look over the whole history of humanity and the level of suffering in the day of the Buddha with the you know, just even the physical suffering. People died all the time of a toothache because they didn't have antibiotics. Imagine that. If you just had something wrong with your tooth, you'd die a horrible, painful, long-suffering death. So anyway, this is one of the phrases, may I trust a larger perspective beyond my personal view. Here's another one. That sometimes if we have a loved one who is suffering and maybe we even think we know something that will help them and they won't do it. I wish for your well-being, but I cannot keep you from suffering. So we can be in touch with our heart that we do wish for their well-being. And we can, we can have that wish. But we can also feel that our wish isn't going to change them. That that is beyond our control. All of these things are acknowledging the fact that we don't control these things. We can contribute. We can do the best we can. But we're not in control. And the me likes to think it's in control. And then... Here's one little tough love maybe for ourselves. My happiness and unhappiness depend on my thoughts and actions, not on my wishes. 
also, you know, again, this is an acknowledgement that if I keep ruminating about this thing that I, you know, maybe we've done something that we feel ashamed of and we can't undo it. And we're going over it and over it and over it and punishing ourselves and wishing we'd done something different. It's over. Yes, we can go clean it up. That we can do, but we can't actually change what we did or what was somebody else did. So this is an acknowledgement of hard realities that can really get us caught up in a lot of ruminating and a lot of suffering that we just can't let go of. Or sometimes it can be even more simple things that like I've had this thing with, I've moved recently in my healthcare I was the biggest thing I was concerned about was changing over to a new healthcare system. And I got changed over, but it's been now like eight weeks and I haven't, I haven't had access to my online health records or emailing my doctor or anything. I spent nine hours on the phone with customer service and IT reps from my healthcare system, nine hours. Three times they've promised me within 24 hours or five days that it would be taken care of. I finally had a grievance process that they said, this is your only option. I did that. The person emailed me to say your problem's fixed. I went in to sign in. Nothing was different. It was no different than on the day one. So, and this has to do with my health care. I can't get my health care, you know? So that even little things like this, that it's like, Really, the reality is I'm powerless. I am completely powerless. Unless they fix it, I can't do anything about that. And that's hard to be in touch with. So it's easy to ruminate over and over. What else can I do? I've done everything. I can't do anything else. I have to just wait until they fix it. So that's a place, that's a smaller place. For equanimity, where, you know, it's easy to just get worked up about these things. And at some point you realize, I just, I'm, I can't control this. So my happiness and unhappiness depend on my thoughts and actions, not on my wishes. And I can suffer or I can incline the heart towards equanimity. And sometimes compassion comes in there to, you know, this is part of why the compassion practice is taught first. So these are alternate phrases. And then there's, I talked about the near enemy. So equanimity isn't indifference, especially like when it has to do with someone else or ourselves, but it's easier to see like where say someone's suffering and now, well, I'm just going to have equanimity about it. That's like, there's a throwaway energy to that. That's not what this is. This is keeping our hearts open and staying engaged, but realizing we're not in control. So that's different than indifference. Or like, Say with the homeless situation, I live on the West Coast where we have a lot of homeless people. It's easy to to go there. So this isn't indifference. This is 
a sense of staying in touch with our open hearts and yet realizing where we can and can't actually do anything. And then the far enemy is um, resentment, maybe about about what's happening, Um, greed for trying to get more than like entitlement, like I'm entitled to have have this be the way I want it. You know, that can be a little bit in the zone. Um, Anxiety about the uncontrollability of phenomena. At a really deep, ultimate reality level, equanimity is really, from the awake perspective, all phenomena are happening on their own, and there is no me doing any of it. So this practice is really also cultivating you know, the capacity in awakening to show up 100%, be be present 100%, and be surrendered 100%. You know, that's really what we're pointing at here is, and there's a lot of us that really wants to control things or wants to feel like we are in control of everything, that the me is the is the god of its own little universe and is controlling everything. And you know, um so so that's kind of the the far enemy is uh is kind is feeling like we're you know we should be in control, be able to control everything in our in our sphere of life. So when we're doing this practice more like fully and doing it more intensively, then there's all the level of beings. And we usually start this practice with the neutral person because it's the easiest to feel not that attached to the neutral person's happiness because we don't really know them that well. So we always start with, you know, the the easiest place if we're doing this as a practice like we're doing it over a period of weeks or months. If you're doing it as an antidote to a situation you're facing, then you would just apply it to yourself or to the person where um, the difficulty in your life is happening. But if you're doing it with all of the, the beings, you start with neutral and then go to the benefactor, friend, difficult person, self, and all beings. So that's that's the sequence. So this is the equanimity practice and it really is um it's it's a hard practice, especially when what's happening feels very compelling to us and feels very um very hard to hard to find a place of rest with and but it's really quite liberating it's a practice that can really let us like in this case with my healthcare provider after nine hours on the phone I was on my 15th person who I've dealt with and the person was like wow I can't believe you're not you know angrier I would be a way angrier than you if I was in your your situation and I, I kept feeling like I was trying to get some anger going I was I felt really more um frustrated I think than anything but it never went to that never 
sort of got to a point where I took it out on the people at the end of the phone who were just doing the best they could. I mean, I could see that all of them were really doing the best they could. They just couldn't solve the problem. And so there was a, there's a, was a way that, um, it didn't, I didn't add to it. I'm not saying I never do, so I don't want to give the impression, but in this case, I was actually surprised that I, that there was as much equanimity as there was. Um, but there's a way that that, because it's still not solved, I'm going to be going on two months. Yeah. So, um, but there's a way that it um, it can make the reality of not being in control of the circumstances of our life a lot more a lot more workable to where we can have peace and not be uh, ruminating about these things over and over and hurting ourselves really that's what it comes down to is when that's happening we're we're, we're causing ourselves unnecessary suffering. So I'll stop there and see if there are any comments or questions. Joe Beth. Well, I was thinking of uh, the word acceptance, and it seems to me that acceptance is pretty close to equanimity, but uh, what's your, what's mm-hmm. your take on that? Yeah, yeah, thanks for the questions. Yeah, acceptance is is part of what can lead to equanimity, is an acceptance of things as they are. Yeah, so acceptance there, you know, it it might feel a little different in the heart, but it's it's something, it's a capacity that allows for the equanimity to be there. Acceptance of how it is. That this is this is the reality of how it is. And that can allow for a sense of, ah, you know, of being able to put down the angst about it. Right. Yes, absolutely. Acceptance is, uh, is very supportive in really letting us not be so caught up in running over and over and over something. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Mieko. So related to that acceptance, um, and what tricky part for me is in serenity prayer, you mentioned that, you know, the, the, Serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. And the next part, the courage to change the part that I can change and the, to know, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm-hmm. So where, so I still I still can work on what well, um I don't know how to put this. So it it's um it's okay to look at that or is there something that I can change in this reality or in what I am facing right now? But 
uh, I often get caught that am I gripping? Am I, mm-hmm. um, so, so yeah, the, the wisdom to know the difference. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always difficult to know the difference. Where shall I, uh, where shall I stop? Right. To try to change or to look for the things that I can change. Right. Uh, yes. That so- is, that is a tricky area. You're so right because we can go round and round and round and keep thinking, Oh, I just missed something or, well, I'm going to try that again and see if maybe I do it a little better this time. That'll have a different outcome. And it is easy to get caught up in the can I change, you know, have I missed something that I didn't see that maybe I can actually change and to keep ourselves in the suffering longer. And there's, you know, that's, it's something where you, you know, feeling into your own wisdom, maybe getting some perspective from close friends or if you have a a teacher you work with or even a therapist you know depending on the situation that can be a place to to feel into our own wisdom if there's that sense of really like gripping like I just can't let go of it and there's something in you that really knows that you're you're clinging there's a clinging, like there can be a feeling in us when we're really clinging beyond the point where we really would be better served to let go. That can be a place of feeling into yourself and into the wisdom of that. But it's, you know, there aren't always clear cut answers there. Like say, especially if it's like helping a friend, me, I've had, I've worked with a few people who have loved ones, family members who maybe had a, a really severe mental health issue like schizophrenia. And, you know, getting the, the loved one to take medication when they take it, they are better, but then they feel like they're dead inside when they take it and then they stop taking it. How much can you do for that loved one? Where's the right point to say I can't do anymore? Where's the right point to support that person who might become homeless? You know, so those are, those are places where it's, it can be very personal, but also helping, you know, asking for help from friends, from Dharma friends or other loved ones who know you and your situation can be a place to, to get some perspective on the situation and sometimes really the hardest thing is to let go and realize I can't do anything. It's really up to this person and they're, they may not choose what I wish for them, you know, or with, with social activism, that's another place where, you know, ultimately we could dedicate our whole lives to different kinds of activism and people do that, but, for each one of us, why, what is the right level to be involved in social change issues? And that is a very personal question of what is right for me in terms of contributing in some way 
and accepting that I am not the one who gets to decide what are the ways I can support positive change without, you know, it becoming detrimental to myself. So these aren't there, these aren't easy answers. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the question. Um, and feeling into yourself and into your own wisdom is, is a good place to start. But if you feel that sense of clinging, like you just, uh, and it's not in like, I also want to make a distinction is that it's not always about stopping the action. It's the sense of equanimity. We can have equanimity and still take action. So the practice of equanimity can happen whether we're taking action or not taking action. Does that make sense? Because, like, we could be taking action, but the action actually may be doing harm because we're coming at it from reactivity, and we're actually making things worse in that situation rather than better. Even though the intention may be good, it may be that we're so caught up in the in the ego self and so reactive that we're actually making the situation worse rather than better. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes, Ted. Um, you're muted, Ted. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, you say it's about our our thoughts and our actions, not our wishes. Correct me if I'm wrong. A wish is nothing more than a thought. What's mm-hmm. what 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 do we mean by wishes? Here? Yeah. So the way this is, these are you know some of the the that's an adaptation of the traditional phrases. So these aren't just to be clear. That's not a phrase I made up. But what that's pointing to is that all of the Brahma Viharas they aren't designed to change the other person. They're, they're designed to change our own internal, uh, to purify the heart so that we can stay in contact with the present moment, even when it's hard. So a wish would be like, um, gosh, I wish that, um, I wish I wasn't so upset about the fact that my healthcare Providers can't figure out what's wrong with my online access. I wish that was different. That's really different than me going, you know what? I just spent 20 minutes ruminating about this, and it's doing nothing. So I'm going to not let myself keep ruminating. I'm going to actually sit here and feel what's going on with the ruminating and feel, you know what? The reality is I'm powerless, and I don't want to be in touch with that. But I'm going to sit here and realize that I am powerless and just let myself feel how much I dislike feeling powerless and stay with it. And knowing that it's impermanent and at some point that feeling of powerlessness will subside. And then I won't be sitting here for 20 minutes ruminating, trying to avoid feeling powerless. That's very different than just wishing that I felt better. That's actually doing inner work. 
So I think when those phrases are pointing to, you know, wishing something is way different than actually being willing to do the inner work that it takes to let go of something. Okay. Does that, does, how does that land with you, Ted? Okay. Yeah. So like in the case that I, the example I give you, my happiness and unhappiness depend on my thoughts and actions, not on my wishes. So if I'm really doing this as a practice and I'm, you know, suffering about this situation that I can't do anything about, doing that might make me realize I just hate feeling powerless. I hate it, you know. And now all of a sudden I have maybe I bring in some Vipassana and I can actually feel how much I hate feeling powerless and then at some point, if I stay with it long enough, it's like, oh, okay, that's over. I'm powerless. I can accept it. I don't like it, but I can accept it. So that's really it. I think <clears throat> what that phrase is pointing at how we let go. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. And Steve, did you have your hand up there? Yeah, I just wanted to get your take on the sort of phrase, let go. Um, you know, it, it seems like to me uh, that's an action, you know, that I have some control about letting go of something. I, so, you know, when you're talking today, I, I was sort of getting the sense of what your meaning is just to let things be as they are. Is that letting go? Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think the letting go and the acceptance, those are things we can't make happen through will. We can't, the ego can't force letting go or like try and force yourself to relax. You know, just the fact of the force makes it impossible to have happen or like surrender. Now I'm going to force myself to surrender to accept those are all things that happen from within us when there's a readiness like the ripe avocado you know we can't bake an avocado and make it right but we can put it in a paper bag and that might speed it up a little bit and that's really what we're doing with our spiritual practice is for cultivating the conditions for that to arise in a genuine way when there's a readiness and part of it, you know, unfortunately part of suffering, like the Buddha talked about the hot coal and we're all holding these hot coals of suffering. And most of the time we don't realize we're doing it. Like when somebody's ruminating over and over and over, trying to find a solution to something that basically they don't control, they're avoiding feeling the hot coal that they're powerless But when we actually sit there and feel it and how painful it is, then there's the chance that maybe we can let go. And that letting go happens because we're with the truth. So in Buddhism, part of what we're doing is being with truth. And and the truth often of itself can allow for letting go that is real. So it's an internal process. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why they're all practices, you know, right. and really, ultimately, when we're with the truth as it is, there is our natural, our deeper nature is is really trying to help us be free. I mean, all of you are here doing this tonight instead of something else. So you have a natural inclination to freedom. And that's where if we cultivate that coming out, there's a way our consciousness wants to find that place of less suffering. And sometimes that it's through feeling how painful it is to be caught up in that. Thank you. But there's the balm. I mean, the Brahma Viharas are really like balms for the heart because like the Dalai Lama, when he was asked once about, um, about the suffering of the Tibetan people, he said, well, this allows for me to feel compassion. And I thought, I wonder what he means by this. You know, this was like 15 or 20 years ago, but for him, he has this natural openness of his heart. And so when he sees that, he feels a compassion that is actually a balm, not only for him, but for others who are in contact with him. So that's where, you know, the Brahmiharas are cultivating that balm arising naturally. And equanimity can be felt in the heart as a balm to the kind of suffering we have when we just really can see we're not in control. And we wish something was different, but it's not. Yeah, thank you. So um so next month I will be talking. I'm gonna do one or two months of supplemental heart practices, and next month I'm going to work with the forgiveness practice. So you could say it's the fifth Brahma Vihara in a way. And um so I would welcome you to um to partake of the forgiveness practice and May you all find an equanimity within yourself over these holidays, over all that's going on in the world, and find this place of peace that is really our natural birthright for all of us as humans. Hey, I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.